Hello, readers! My name is Jason Jeffries, and this is Bookin', brought to you by our new presenting sponsor, the North Carolina Book Festival, one of North Carolina's many amazing premier literary events. Happy to host North Carolina's many amazing authors, along with national and international bestsellers, prize winners, independent authors, and My guest today is Andy Lee Roth, along with Mickey Huff. Andy is the editor of the Project Censored State of the Free Press 2024, which is published by our friends at the Censored Press and Seven Stories Press. Andy, welcome to the program. Thanks so much, Jason. It's a pleasure to be on Booking with you. It's an honor to have you here. And first, Andy, uh, before we get started... Uh, how are you preparing for the upcoming election cycle? Oh, well, I think we're all bracing ourselves a little bit. Uh, it's going to be a wild roller coaster ride for sure. Um, I'll just use that question as a, a chance to plug a book I had the honor of working on, uh, not the censored year book, but a book called The Media and Me, mm-hmm. uh, which is a guide to critical media literacy that we a team of nine other co-authors and I wrote for young people. And uh, although we wrote the book for our young people, critical media literacy is for everyone, uh, especially in an election year. So Mm. one way I'm preparing, I guess, or hoping to prepare friends and people in my community and anyone I have a chance to talk to about the project's work is by saying, uh, we built this book to be really practical as a way of not discouraging people from being engaged with media, Mm. but in, but empowering them to um, deal with media on their own terms and at their own pace. And I think that that last point is one that's important for an election year. We will be saturated with horse race style uh, election year coverage from all the major uh, TV cable and other establishment news outlets for the next, uh, however many months it is now until November. Mm. Um, And I think the 24 seven news cycle doesn't always do us a a service as members of our communities and, and as uh, uh, you know, potentially as voters in the election. Um, Sometimes the slower pace allows us to have time to process and think about things. And so I think one way to deal, one way I'm trying to deal with this upcoming election cycle, and it might be useful to other people, is by just moderating the pace at which I am taking in um, news reports about the election and the the issues that are informing or failing to inform the election. But yeah, that's a huge topic. We could talk all afternoon on that, I think. Yeah, and oh boy, uh, will we, because I have several questions about that. Um, first, I want to ask you about the foreword in this uh, um, collection by Alan McLeod. And why do you think, as he writes, that Americans like to think about propaganda as something that exists in quote-unquote enemy nations like China and North Korea, and not as something that exists in our own country? Yeah, we were super glad to have Alan McLeod write the foreword to this year's Project Censored Yearbook, State of the Free Press 2024. Alan's a distinguished journalist, uh, senior senior staff uh, uh, reporter at Mint Press News. 
he's also interestingly enough as a, a, a fellow sociologist my background's in sociology and i recently learned that alan has a phd in sociology oh, wow. so when when he makes an observation of that sort it's partly drawing on um his cross-national experience thinking about news different news media different news cultures in different countries mm. um I think I can't read Alan's mind, but I would say that one of the things there is that it's tempting for Americans to think, well, we have freedom of the press in the United States. We have a First Amendment that protects our rights to expression and our rights to, uh, to some degree, to information through the freedom of the press. And therefore, um, we aren't vulnerable to propaganda the way, say, members of a of uh, a less democratic or more totalitarian uh, nation might be. Uh, and I think one response to that is, is to say, um, in a society with free press principles as we have here in the United States and which we should be grateful for, mm. um, the propaganda often takes more subtle forms. Mm. And so it's not as obvious. The clear thing, uh, you know, if you lived in, say, the Soviet Union uh, back in the day, or maybe if you lived in contemporary China today, you know that the media are state controlled. Mm -hmm. It's not just they're state sponsored, they're state controlled. And so, you know, at some level to take anything that comes through those channels with multiple grains of salt. Mm -hmm. right? But because we have free press principles here in the United States, because we have news media that operate independently of the government, um, we can harbor uh, an illusion, uh, not a self-serving one, uh, that we aren't vulnerable the same way. Or that if we are vulnerable to propaganda, it's not coming internally, right? I mean, it's the revisiting as we had a strong wave of after the 2016 elections, the whole discourse about Russia Gate and Russian influence on American voters during that previous election cycle. And um, I think we need to be wary about those kinds of efforts to interfere with our elections, say. Um, but we also need to be equally alert to more proximate threats, including kind of um, propaganda masquerading as news that's been produced from within the United States. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much. Um... Alan writes also that U.S. schools seldom teach media literacy accurately, which I agree with, and I'm assuming you agree with, considering the topic of your new book. Uh, how do you think that things in the United States would be different if schools did teach media literacy accurately? Yeah, I mean, I think the scales are starting to shift here. I think there is starting to be an awareness of the need for what we at Project Censored and our allies call critical media literacy. Mm -hmm. And so just in the last year plus, for instance, the state of California has become, I think, the fourth or fifth state in the country to mandate uh, media literacy mm -hmm. uh, a curriculum in public schools. And mm -hmm. that's, I think, overall a very positive development. Um, and I think the trend is towards more of that um, the, every development though comes with potential for a kind of backlash and co-optation. And one of the struggles and why I emphasize, for instance, in talking with you now, the idea of not just media literacy, but critical media literacy is there's a strong effort 
because media literacy is proven to be uh, so interesting, there's a strong effort by certain entities, especially corporate ones, to kind of co-opt notions of media literacy uh, and, and provide, in effect, a watered-down, mealy version of what it could be. Mm. And the critical in critical media literacy, uh, when I use that, that terminology, uh, refers to kind of a strong version of media literacy that takes into account and treats as central to the issue of that media literacy uh, notions of power and inequality. Um, and if you're dealing with media and you're thinking about power and inequality, one starting place, for instance, is the concentration of ownership mm. and the well-known fact uh, now that um, originates with a study done by Ben Begdikian in the early 1980s called Media Monopoly, that today more than 90 some percent of all the media we consume is, is, is in effect owned and basically controlled by, depending on how you count, five or six major conglomerate corporations. Mm. Raising for me as a sociologist and as someone who studies uh, journalism and the media more generally, raising the fundamental question of can we have diversity of media content when we lack diversity of media ownership? Right? right, And that's a kind of critical media literacy type of question where the power dynamic is, is kind of central there, right? Will we have a diverse range of, of uh, perspectives and voices when the ownership is consolidated in the hands of a fairly homogenous few? Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much. And uh, this is a big question, but kind of from an elementary level or in a nutshell, what does the adequate teaching of critical media literacy look like? Mm. I think the first thing it should do is it should empower students to think for themselves and to critically evaluate material for themselves. Mm. All right. And it should do so in a kind of transparent and and ultimately non trans uh, and sorry ultimately nonpartisan sort of way. Mm. So the basic kind of if you think of critical media literacy as a set of skills, right? There are multiple forms of media, and so the critical media literacy is actually multiple literacies. Mm. Um, what students need, what young people need, what anyone who is aspiring to be critic uh, media literate in a critical way is the ability to employ these employ basic kind of tools of critical thinking to the media that we're all bombarded with on a 24/7 basis every, you know uh, every day every hour um, and so yeah i would say i would say i think it should be empowering mm. it should be transparent and it should be nonpartisan yeah absolutely and what is the closest to a centered, nonpartisan, accurate news organization that we have ready access to in the United States, in your opinion? That's a much harder question because uh, the notion of objectivity in journalism has been part of the problem, I think, rather than part of the solution. So the conventional notion of uh, journalistic objectivity is that uh, journalists depersonalize their reporting and they also provide balanced coverage. Mm -hmm. And ironically, uh, journalists pursuing objectivity through those two means have actually been proven. We have empirical studies to show this. Um, it's easier for 
interested parties to manipulate journalists committed to that version of objectivity. Mm. So the idea that there's going to be a one size fits all news organization for that will be useful to all people across all topics is kind of the unicorn, right? right. We probably aren't going to find it. Um, we don't have any, um, any empirical evidence of it, despite the desirability of such a creature existing. Instead, I think what you have, to me, the strongest forms of journalism today articulate a clear standpoint, mm -hmm. but again, they're transparent about that standpoint. So it's not as a, a, a CBS news executive way back in the 70s made this kind of audacious claim that our news is news from nowhere. It doesn't represent anyone's point of view. And that was kind of a, a distilled version of this idealized notion of what journalistic objectivity could be. Mm -hmm. Um, but the idea of news from nowhere just kind of rings odd to the ear. Of course, all news is from somewhere. News is basically, as many people in the sociology uh, of news uh, kind of subfield of my discipline will talk about, um, news is really storytelling. Mm -hmm. And so storytelling is full of choices about what to describe and how to describe it. And of course, journalists have professional norms and values that guide how they tell stories. They aren't just saying whatever they want to on any given day. Um, but I think instead of trying to point people to a thing that probably doesn't exist, uh, I what I would point them to is uh, the Society of Professional Journalists Code of Ethics, actually, mm. which surprisingly is very useful for evaluating the news as well as for journalists trying to produce news stories. So the, the, the SPJ's Code of Ethics basically says that good journalism is independent, it's accountable, it's transparent, and ultimately, all those are in, in service, the idea of being independent and accountable and transparent are all in service of the journalist's core job, which is to seek the truth and report it, while at the same time minimizing harm. Yeah. And so instead of saying, oh, you should go to Truth Out or Yes Magazine or Consortium News um, or the Progressive, or Mother Jones, all of which are news organizations that Project Censored regularly turns to for important but underreported news stories, mm. um, and many more. Uh, I don't want to start listing some and leave out. Instead of doing that, like I think for any story that anyone's reading or seeing come across their uh, social feed or watching on television, um, you know, ask, is this, is, is the work here in service of the truth? Is it minimizing harm? Is, are, is the story being told in a way that expresses the journalist's independence? Is the reporting accountable? Is it transparent in its sources? And if the story passes that, it sort of doesn't matter what outlet is reporting it. It's probably a trustworthy story that's worth the time it takes to make sense of it. Um, if it doesn't pass those, right, if it's if it's reporting that even if it's reporting that uh, seeks the truth, but does so in a way that doesn't minimize, but in fact inflicts harm, then maybe we're better served by looking for other sources on that topic.
Yeah, absolutely. So I mean, I think I think the whole thing of critical media literacy is about teaching people to be more self-sufficient in their own judgment and to not just go from the gut and say, well, I like how that sounds, or I've trusted this source in the past. So of course they're reliable now, right? But that to be like more proactive in our engagement with news. And that of course takes more time and more energy, which are precious commodities for all of us. But my experience uh, both for myself and working with students is that that extra effort is rewarded because instead of being like a passive consumer whose stuff is just like bombarding us, you start to kind of take charge of your own news diet. And, you know, that may make you feel better or feel like you're healthier as a consumer of news. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much for that answer, Andy. Listeners, we're going to take a short break here to hear about Libro FM audiobooks, and then I will be right back with Andy Lee Roth. The Book and Podcast is sponsored by Libro FM audiobooks. Libro FM lets you purchase audiobooks directly from your favorite local bookstore, Quail Ridge Books. You can pick from more than 100,000 audiobooks, including New York Times bestsellers and recommendations from booksellers around the country. With Libro.fm, you'll get the same audiobooks at the same price as the largest audiobook company out there. You know the name. But you'll be part of a much different story, one that supports community. Listeners of Bookin can get a three-month audiobook membership for the price of one. Go to Libro.fm, that's L-I-B-R-O dot F-M, and enter Bookin, B-O-O-K-I-N, in the promo code space. With each listen, take pride in knowing that you're supporting local bookstores. I'm back with Andy Lee Roth, editor, along with Mickey Huff of Project Censored State of the Free Press 2024, which is published by our friends at the Censored Press and Seven Stories Press. Andy, I now want to talk to you about the introduction uh, for this collection that was written by Mickey Huff and yourself titled, What If Journalism Disappeared? Um, Why do you think Americans at large ignore journalism in favor of other more sensational content? That's a that's a tough question, right? If we had a for sure answer to that, uh, a lot of our problems might be solved. But we live in a media saturated society, as we've been talking about, and there's a lot of information and enticing content coming at people constantly. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the things that Mickey and I talk about in um, the introduction to the yearbook, uh, this edition of the yearbook, is divided attention and a phenomenon that's known among um, kind of news scholars as news snacking. Mm. And the idea is that uh, with the rise of uh, digital media and especially the rise of smartphones and social media, um, people are literally consuming news in different ways now. And that metaphor that uh, a German colleague of ours uses, Hector Harklotter, Um, is that of news snacking. And Hector says, news is no longer received consciously, but rather consumed incidentally like potato chips. Mm. So instead of sitting down and reading the paper while you eat breakfast in the morning, something that my students thought was the craziest thing about me when I would tell them personal things that would made more than anything else that made them made me seem either really old or like a Martian from another planet to them that I read a newspaper in the morning every day. Um, so rather than that, we're scrolling through our we're scrolling through our feeds and seeing some news when it comes to us over those social feeds. 
And there are two kinds of problems with that just quickly. Um, one is, um, and there've been studies done on this, um, a kind of news finds me perception that anything important will come to me through our, my social media. So I don't actually need to pay attention to the news itself because anything important will find me. Yeah. Um, studies on that have shown that uh, the news finds me perception is really a misperception. Mm -hmm. uh, it leads to a false sense of being informed and widening gaps in political knowledge. Those are obviously dangerous, dangerous um, phenomena in a fraught election year or any time for that matter. The other thing is that the, the news finds me phenomena relies on social media platforms that have little to no commitment to journalistic values or ethics. Mm -hmm. They're big tech platforms that treat news like any other form of content. They like to promote what's popular. They're going to bury or, or marginalize anything that doesn't seem popular because they're about eyes on the screen. Mm -hmm. And so... There are serious questions in the 21st century, I would say, about what's happening to how we how news reaches us when for so many of us, um, social platforms, things like Meta's Facebook and Instagram or Google um, for its search engine, so much of what reaches us is is being conveyed to us by these big tech platforms that, as I say, have little to zero commitment uh, to journalism as a public good. It's just another form of content that may be more or less valuable from their point of view. Yes, thank you so much. Um, I think we may have time for two more questions here. Um, first, uh, a shorter, simpler question, I think. Uh, what is a news desert and how prevalent are they? News deserts are communities where there is one or no local news outlet, newspaper usually in the community. I, sorry, I misspoke. I should say counties. Mm -hmm. um, and so there are about a fifth of the nation, 70 million Americans live in what are formally defined as news deserts. So this is another threat. If we have on one hand, kind of how the role of the press to inform the public is central to being engaged in, in democracy. Mm -hmm. On one hand, we have new snacking and divided attention as kind of a, a, a demand side problem. News deserts represent a supply side problem. There are, there are uh, an enormous number of counties in the United States, more than 1,600, that are one newspaper away from having no newspaper at all, mm -hmm. or they already are in a state where there's no local newspaper in that country. And what happens in those cases is that um, kind of mercenary faux news organizations that have strong partisan biases come in and fill the vacuum. They fill the hunger for local news, the need for local news, um, but they don't fit the kind of criteria we were talking about earlier in the sense of they're not transparent about their biases, right? Yeah. It's not standpoint, it's a kind of a hidden agenda, and those are different things. So news deserts are also um, part of kind of, I think any assessment of the state of the free press in the United States has to take into account the kind of perilous quality. And... Uh, I love pointing people to, if you want to check out and see, are you in a news desert? Mm -hmm. um, for people who are interested, there's a fantastic website, an interactive website that addresses the kind of the idea of news deserts. It's um, 
The URL is usnewsdeserts, all one word, dot com. Mm -hmm. And it's a project of the uh, University of North Carolina Hussman School of Journalism and Media. Mm -hmm. um, and on that website, you can go and punch in, say, your zip code and learn, do you live in a news desert? You can learn who owns your local newspaper. You can learn where in your region newspapers have disappeared and so forth and so on. Uh, where are the ethnic voices in, in um, uh, among the newspapers that are serving your community? It's a fascinating, really useful interactive website for anyone concerned about news deserts and wanting to learn more about them. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Andy. Um, finally, and I, I'm sensing that we could probably talk all day, Andy, but we both have uh, appointments to move on to. And maybe we can do this again uh, regarding your new book, which I would love to check out. Um, thank you for editing the collection. And thank you to the Censored Press and Seven Stories Press for publishing it. But finally, do you think responsible, accessible journalism will ever come back into fashion in the United States? And if so, how do you see this happening? I think there's a hunger for it. Uh, yes, I do. Um, one of the other things that uh, Mickey Hupp and I write about in the introduction to this year's yearbook mm -hmm. um, is remembering a golden era of muckraking mm -hmm. in the early 20th century, right? Mm -hmm. um, so these are not necessarily household names to people today, but Ida Mae Tarbell, Lincoln Stevens, Upton Sinclair, um, working in the kind of aftermath of the so-called Gilded Age, these muckraking journalists um, exposed all kinds of abuses of power and abuses of authority. And there was a mass audience for this kind of reporting, right? Mm -hmm. um, uh, as uh, Carl Jensen, the founder of Project Censored, edited a book called Stories That Changed America about great reporting from the 20th century. And he had this to say about the early muckrakers. He says, you know, their reporting, their investigative reporting led to a nationwide public revolt against social evils and a decade of reforms in, I'll read this slowly, this is mm -hmm. quoting from Carl, um, but I'll read it slowly because of its contemporary relevance. A decade of reforms came from the muckraking journalism of the early 20th century in areas like antitrust legislation, the electoral process, banking regulations, and a host of other social programs. That sounds to me like a recipe for what we need today, mm -hmm. right? Um, and so one of the things Mickey and I talk about is maybe we could harness the public appetite for that kind of junk food news we were talking a little bit about earlier, right? The, the appetite for stories of shame and scandal. What if that was harnessed to the positive cause of social engagement and social betterment? Um, um, I think there's potential there. I think that's why we are, we, I often say that we live in a kind of golden era of independent journalism, um, thanks in large part to uh, con the continuing uh, kind of openness of the internet um, mm -hmm. and digital media. Um, but that the hard thing is that it's, there's so much competition for people's attention that really good news outlets uh, some of which are highlighted every year in the censored press in, in our yearbook. Um, uh, it's hard for them to get the attention and support that they deserve. And so one of the points of Project Censored has always been to try to elevate those voices, to hold them up and say, you know, uh, here's a story you ought to know about. And here's the news organization and the reporter that brought this story to our attention deserve more of our support.
Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you so much, Andy, for editing this wonderful collection. Listeners, I've been speaking with Andy Lee Roth, editor, along with Mickey Huff of Project Censored's State of the Free Press 2024, which is published by our friends at the Censored Press and Seven Stories Press. Andy, thank you so much for joining me. Thanks, Jason. It's been a pleasure to be with you on Booking, and I'd love to come back again sometime. Wonderful. Once again, I would like to thank Andy Lee Roth for joining me. Copies of Project Censored's State of the Pre-Press 2024 can be purchased at your favorite local independent bookstore. And if you don't have a favorite local independent bookstore, visit bookshop.org or our friends at page 158 Books in Wake Forest, North Carolina. I would also like to thank our friends at Libro FM Audiobooks. Please navigate over to Libro.fm and enter the promo code BOOKIN, that's B-O-O-K-I-N in the promo code space to get one free audiobook and support your favorite local independent bookstore in the process. My name is Jason Jefferies and this has been Booking.